Welcome to SACPA. This is a reminder to please turn off your cell phones. Um, my name is Kristen, and I will be moderating today's SACPA session. Keep in mind that the talk and question and answer will be recorded and available on SACPA's website. Shaw TV records SACPA presentations for their broadcasts. Reminder to folks to please place the $12 for lunch in the basket at each table and have someone count it before the correct amount prior to SACPA collecting the baskets before lunch. So today will entail 25 to 30 minutes for the presentation. Lunch and question period will follow around 1.30 and we will be finishing around 1.30. Today's topic title is At Its Roots Is Racism a Generational and Social Tendency? Our speaker this afternoon is Dr. Linda Meniguns. Linda Meniguns received her PhD from Trent University Faculty of Indigenous Studies in 2013. Previously, she had earned her MA at Carleton University and her BA at St. Thomas University in New Brunswick, as well as a Bachelor of Law in 1996 at Common Law University of Ottawa. Linda Meniguns has been teaching at the University of Lethbridge since 2008 in the Native American Studies Department. Her areas of expertise are Indians and the criminal justice system, Native American women, family and community development, Aboriginal law, and Aboriginal development. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Linda Meniguns. It's an honor to be here, and it's an honor to talk about the subject that we're going to endeavor to explore today. It's quite sensitive, but at the same time, it's very important. And I think, uh, given the, we just went through Aboriginal Day yesterday, <laughs> and some of the new events and changes that are occurring in labeling and naming, and I think it's time that we started to engage in these kinds of discussions openly so that we can make change. Okay, I'm not quite sure how I... Oh, and that one's down? Okay. Yeah. All right, sorry about that. <laughs> I should be used to changes in technology. Every single one of our classes is different. <laughs> but, but there's always something new, okay? So the question is, um, is it racism? Or is it, or is the totality of all the actions that Aboriginal people experience, can they merely be seen as, as, as just acceptable minor issues like for instance the art piece that was uh, that was uh, put together by a native artist a part of 150 of them that were going to be placed in various places in Canada by indigenous artists and it was considered a silly action okay another piece that I think is important to keep in mind at this point. Um, 
day before yesterday, there was a report from StatsCan, and it said that racism has increased by 30% in Alberta. When I read the report, what was interesting is every single other group was listed. Aboriginal people did not even appear in that. Our issues do not even get on the record. They're considered silly. They're considered just something, right? And we're gonna talk about that. So, alternatively, are we able to recognize that that mindset of taking those situations that Aboriginal people face, and are we able to realize as, as a community, as a society here in Canada, that they are part of what has been one of the most massive intergenerational social constructions uh, imposed by government in order to get rid of the Indian question so long ago, 150 years ago. Okay, and I will get into that in a, as we move into this. So I looked at what the definition of racism is and looking at the incidence of racism and the legal kind of quantification of, of actions that might be qualified as, as, as racist. And in general, there are actions where there's that notion of superiority of one culture over another. There, there's inferior and superior. There's a hierarchical kind of a piece to it, okay, to other races or races. So let's take a look at an incident here that occurred here in Lethbridge. It uh, actually ended up being globally um, portrayed throughout the, the, almost all around the world uh, um, as a very racist event, okay? Or as an event that just shouldn't have happened, uh, especially with the images that were um, uh, circulated and whatnot. So the truth about this high school graduation activity um, started to emerge quite soon. First of all, there was a the shock of it, the uh, um, various attitudes about it. But what else happened afterwards was a little bit almost disturbing in some sense, but uh, at the same time encouraging. Two, two sides to the issue started to emerge. On the Aboriginal side, okay, as this became, it was finally out there, okay? Aboriginal people started to talk about their experiences too. And what we heard was this has been going on throughout the entire city and a lot of the schools over many, many years, okay? So we're talking about truth and reconciliation. So the truth is a lot of people have been turning their minds away and ignoring what has been going on <clears throat> in all of the school systems in Lethbridge for a significant period of time. 
I was able to talk to parents because they all came forward and said, this happened and this happened and this happened. And as those accumulative voices began to have an impact, I realized how massive the problem is. Again, is this silliness? How can an entire city ignore what has been going on? I heard from the parents of these children that they had been telling the school board authorities about their concern about these issues all through the years, okay? Now the other side, okay? The other side of the issue, which is encouraging, is that the principal of the school, who is also a PhD student that's attending U of L, approached us, approached the Native Studies Department to help to deal with this. And that's an ongoing process right now. So instead of resistance, and instead of coloring this as just a silly issue and just a nonsense issue, there's actually a change happening. There's a serious effort now taking place in order to start to engage in a dialogue, to start to talk about a way to deal with the issues. First of all, there's going to have to be a peeling back of, this, of the social construct in which we're all living. Okay. So I, I thought perhaps it would be important to talk about where these notions of superiority or notions of exclusion or the accept, acceptance of exclusion have come from. And when you go right back to the day that the Indian Act was signed, and when you go right back to the British North America Act, at that moment in time, there was a mandate that was, was given, uh, Department of Indian Affairs was formed, and policy was put into place, including legislation that would prohibit all Canadians from assisting any Aboriginal people or in any complaint about these issues, okay? So people could get put in jail if they tried to help any of the Aboriginal people who these policies were imposed on. And those stayed in place until the, in, until the 50s. So what you had then is you had this mandate that was universally applied from one side of Canada to the other, to 642 reserves in Canada, and every single profession was employed in implementing these efforts. Schools were employed, and their, their job was very specific, especially in the residential schools, and that was to strip Aboriginal children in as young an age as possible of their culture, cultural genocide, okay? And nobody was allowed to help them. They were taken from their homes, and I won't go into the atrocities or anything. The RCMP, all the policing services in Canada, was their job to gather up the children. And if any parents resisted, they would get put in jail, okay? All the people, especially here in Western Canada, 
were had the red ticketing uh, uh, policy. It's not even written in the Indian Act because the Indian agents had such full authority over all the Aboriginal people in, in their their care that they could put them in jail or do whatever they wanted with them. They had absolute control over the Aboriginal peoples under under uh, their care in, in each of the reserves, okay? And the RCMP were the ones that would enforce those actions that the Indian agents required. Healthcare officials, healthcare officials were sterilizing Aboriginal people. Healthcare officials were mandated to treat Aboriginal people differently than the general uh, population in Canada. It was restricted, it still is actually, when you have health care coverage from Indian Affairs, while everybody else might have the Cadillac program or options for it, the Aboriginal people have got the little uh, bicycle program. <laughs> very restricted and very limited in the amount of health care services. So these, these professionals, um, government officials as well, provincial, uh, municipal, and federal were all required to comply and enforce these regulations. I can remember uh, interviewing an elder, and he was, uh, he wanted to develop a huge farm plan, and he wanted to buy property just outside of Siksika. And he was told, quite frankly, by the banker that they're not allowed to give Indians loans. So economic, you know, the access to even becoming successful as Aboriginal people was also restricted. So when you have 150 years of these mandates operating through society, there becomes a, an easy tendency to shift to that's okay because Aboriginal people are treated differently. It becomes thoroughly embedded within society that there are Canadians who have full rights and human rights, and then there's Indian Affairs treatment for Aboriginal peoples. Okay. These policies have embedded an attitude within society. Okay. I'll talk about what that uh, becomes, okay? It, it, it creates what are deeply biased attitudes towards Aboriginal people, okay? And these are called, these actions like the art defacement are, are what you call microaggressions, okay? They're microaggressions towards Aboriginal people that never amount to even acts of racism, never even amount to qualifying to get an RCMP or a police action, okay? Because there's this underlying acceptance. So what we've come to today, oops, I've got something going on here, is as Aboriginal people are coming out of the control of Indian agents, okay, that just happened in the 1960s. The government started to uh, uh, retract and pull away from managing each of the reserves and suddenly people were dumped into managing their own affairs and as people 
scrambled in order to fight for their rights and they started to uh, put uh, cases forward. They started winning cases from one end of Canada to the other in order to um, um, win their rights. And as they do, do this, the artifacts like my dress, like the wearing of these hats, of regaining our identity as individuals becomes very apparent and pride and and our integrity uh, starts to emerge in various ways throughout our, not just our, our culture and on reserves, but in the cities as well. And these, these items that we're bringing forward are not just an artifact from the past. These items are attached not only historically to our, uh, the people who we're attached to, but a lot of them have attachments to the very land that we come from, our bundles, our, the repatriation of, of the items that were taken away that weren't burnt or, or destroyed by Indian agents at the, uh, well, the Indian agents were in effect. A lot of these come through our dreams. These are items that uh, have, have uh, resilience in our understanding of their purposes and, and what they mean. Our culture is rich with all kinds of teachings. Our culture has, has memory, it has uh, a standard within it that we're willing to share in order to find that common ground in which we can all actually grow from. Okay? There's many significant stories in our environment. And today, as this, as this resurgence and uh, strength and identity begins to take form and appear through art and through various uh, actions and activities, uh, through the, re the uh, recognition of our ceremonies as, as sacred. Uh, when we see these actions that happen at the high school, it becomes very offensive that somebody would take something as sacred as those items such as headdresses or to take the, the imagery of Aboriginal uh, women and turn it into like misogynist uh, kind of images is, is detrimental to the relationship that we hope that we will, will build in the future. I think that the important thing is, as, as I learn as well, is that our knowledge bases are extremely deep and long and our knowledge bases take up to a lifetime to learn. Our knowledge bases are kind of double, triple <laughs> the learning process to even what our universities are today. And they're just as meaningful as us, as, 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 uh, as our educational degrees are. Uh, for example, if somebody has a headdress, okay, they have earned that headdress and it's like your degree, like your uh, MA degree. You earned it and that headdress or your, your diploma on the wall is the representation of that. You can't transfer that to another person. Could you transfer your master's certificate to somebody else? It's something that's earned. So all of our materials are earned and usually earned through extreme and very serious, serious uh, commitments 
uh, to the people uh, saving lives or, or uh, committing in many, many ways in order to have those. So we have experts in our knowledge that, uh, that keep that uh, knowledge and that that who transfer that information. The impact of our knowledge today is phenomenal. Those bits and pieces that we were able to uh, put together in each of our communities, and it doesn't matter whether it's up north or whether it's in the east or west or south or in Australia, those, those times of sitting at the table with your aunties, with your uncles, with your chief and council, whoever it might be in the stories that they were telling, all of that knowledge is in the heads of our Aboriginal people. We don't have filing cabinets on the reserves. Okay, and it's all in the heads of the people. I worked at the Land Claims Commission in Ottawa, and this little group of Indians from wherever would come into the office, and they'd say, we're here about the claim for I reserve, and we negotiated something, and they would sit there and they'd say, wasn't it Uncle so-and-so? And they would give us the dates and various times ever since the first negotiations of that event, and we would be able to write all that stuff down and then go back into the records of the government and sure enough, there was so a meeting and there was so uh, that uh, uh, additional meetings afterwards. They were absolutely accurate and that oral knowledge has actually provided the legal basis for all the cases that we have won. Some of the cases have to do with territory, land bases out in BC, the rights of, of Aboriginal people to maintain our culture, all of those things have been won. Now what we have to do is start to deconstruct this social environment that uh, is left behind, this, this, the remnants of these policies that still exist in society. Cultural identity is probably one of the most important factors in a human being's existence, okay? Cultural identity is absolutely critical for Aboriginal people in order to uh, be healthy and whole. They, there's an understanding and an attachment, a social uh, construction, a social meaningfulness that, is, is, that people are seeking that uh, is found when people come back to the culture. And so, while each of us is unique, and we define that very differently, our attachment to the culture, um, it's, it's a right that uh, we believe as Aboriginal people we have, we, can, we, we should be able to do in Canadian society. Okay. Okay, and I will end it at that, and uh, I would welcome any kind of question that you could imagine, and you don't have to worry about offending me, because there is nothing that I haven't heard. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I've, d I've done workshops with I, some international students at U of, U of C. They came in, and they, of course they had all these stereotypes. I had them write down all the stereotypes dirty Indian, drunk Indian, all that kind of stuff. And we wrote it all down and then we had them work out solutions. And you know what? The solutions that they worked out are found in every single report that the government's been doing since day one. 
So then I took all their, their, their bad names and I gave them back to the creator and told them they're free of them. So maybe we can do that today. So you can get rid of any notions that you have here today. 